Hello, Ratchet Book Club listeners. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision can also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 68. In need of oil, the hand crank squeaked, but the tall halves of the basement window parted and opened outward into the alleyway. Alarm contacts gleamed in the header, but the system wasn't currently activated. The sill was about four and a half feet off the lavatory floor. With both hands, Junior levered himself onto it. Because the glass wings of the open window didn't lie flat against the exterior wall, they blocked his view. He had to thrust himself farther through the opening until he seesawed on the sill before he could see the length of the entire block, in which the gallery stood at approximately the middle. Thick fog distorted all sense of time and place. At each end of the block, proly hazes the light marked intersections with main streets, but didn't illuminate this narrower passage in between. A few security lamps, bare bulbs under inverted saucer shades or caged in wire, indicated the delivery entrances of some businesses, but the dense white shrouds veiled and diffused these as well, until they were no brighter than gas lights. The muffling fog quieted the city as much as obscured it, and the alley was surprisingly still. Many of the businesses were closed for the night, and as far as Junior could discern, no delivery trucks or other vehicles were parked the length of the block. Acutely aware that someone with more need than patience might soon rap at the locked door, Junior dropped back into the men's room. Nettie, dressed for work but overdressed for his own funeral, slumped against the wall, head bowed, chin on his chest. His pale hands were splayed at his sides, as though he were trying to strike chords from the floor tiles. Junior dragged the musician out from between the commode and the sink. Skinny, pasty-faced, chattering sissy, he hissed, still so furious with Nettie that he wanted to jam the pianist's head in the toilet even though he was dead. Jam his head in and stomp on him, stomp him into the bowl, flush and flush, stomp and stomp, flush and flush. To be useful... Anger must be channeled, as Zed explains with an unusually poetic prose in The Beauty of Rage. Channel your anger and be a winner. 
Junior's current predicament would only get worse if he had to telephone Roto-Rooter to extract a musician from the plumbing. With that thought, he made himself laugh. Unfortunately, his laughter was high-pitched and shaky, and it scared the hell out of him. Channeling his beautiful rage, Junior hefted the corpse onto the windowsill and shoved it headfirst into the alley. The fog received it with what sounded almost like a swallowing noise. He followed the dead man through a window, into the alley, managing not to step on him. No inquiring voice echoed off the passage walls, no accusatory shout. He was alone with the cadaver in this misshrouded moment of the metropolitan night, but perhaps not for long. Another stiff might have required dragging, but Nettie weighed hardly more than a five foot ten breadstick. Junior hauled the body off the ground and slung it over one shoulder in a fireman's carry. Several large dumpsters halt nearby, dark rectangles less seen than suggested in the slowly churning murk, like forms in a dream, as ominous as graveyard sarcophaguses, each as suitable for a musician's carcass as any of the others. One worrisome problem. Nettie might be found in the container before it had been hauled away, instead of at the landfill that preferably would serve as his next-to-last resting place. If his body was discovered here, it must be at a distance from any trash bin used by the gallery. The less likely the cops were to connect Nettie to Greenbaum's art sausage factory, the less likely they also were to connect the murder to Junior. Bent like an ape, he humped the musician north along the alley. The original cobblestone pavement had been coated with blacktop, but in places the modern material had cracked and worn away, providing a treacherously uneven surface made even more treacherous by a skin of moisture shed by the fog. He stumbled and slipped repeatedly, but he used his anger to keep his balance and be a winner, until he found a distant enough dumpster. The container, eye level at the top, Battered, rust-streaked, beaded with condensation, was larger than some in the alleyway, with a bifurcated lid. Both halves of the lid were already raised. Without ceremony or prayer, although with much righteous anger, Junior hoisted the dead musician over the lip of the dumpster. For a dreadful moment, his left arm tangled in the loosely cinched belt of the London Fog raincoat. Straining a shrill beat of anxiety through his clenched teeth, he desperately shook loose and let go of the body. The sound made by the dropping corpse indicated the cushioning trash lined the bottom of the bin, and also that it was no more than half full. This improved chances that Nettie wouldn't be discovered until a dump truck tumbled him into a landfill. And even then, perhaps no eyes would alight upon him again except for those of hungry rats. Move, move, like a runaway train, leaving the dead nuns, or at least one dead musician, far behind. To the open casement window, into the men's room, still seething with rage, angrily cranking shut the twin panes while lazy tongues of fog licked through the narrowing gap. In case someone was waiting in the hallway, he flushed a John for authenticity, though binding food and paragoric still gave him the sturdy bowels of any brave knight in battle. When he dared to look at the mirror above the sink, he expected to see a haggard face, sunken eyes, but the grim experience had left no visible mark. He quickly combed his hair. Indeed, he looked so fine that women would as usual caress him with their yearning gazes when he made his way back through the gallery. As best he could, he examined his clothes. They were better pressed than he expected and not noticeably soiled. He vigorously washed his hands. He took more medication, just to be safe. One yellow capsule, one blue.
A quick survey at a lavatory floor. The musician hadn't left anything behind, neither a pop button nor crimson petals from his boutonniere. Junior unlocked the door and found the hallway deserted. The reception still roared in both showrooms of the gallery. Legions that are uncultured, taste-challenged in every regard except in their appreciation for hors d'oeuvres, yammered about art and chased their cloddish opinions with mediocre champagne. Fed up with them and with this exhibition, Junior half-wished that he would again be stricken by violent nervous amesis. Even in his suffering, he would enjoy spraying these insistently appealing canvases with the reeking ejecta of his gut. Criticism of the most pungent nature. In the main room, on his way toward the front door, Junior saw Celestina White surrounded by adoring fatheads, nattering ninnies, dithering dolts, saps and boneheads, oafs and gawks and simpletons. She was still as gorgeous as her shamelessly beautiful paintings. If the opportunity arose, Junior would have more use for her than for her so-called art. The street in front of the gallery was as flooded by a sea of fog as the alleyway at the back. The headlights of passing traffic probed the gloom like beams from deep salvaged submersibles at work on the ocean floor. He had bribed a parking attendant to keep his Mercedes at the curb in the valet zone, in front of a nearby restaurant, so it would be instantly available when needed. He could also leave the car and follow Celestina on foot if she chose to stroll home from here. Intending to keep the front of the gallery under surveillance from behind the wheel of his Mercedes, Junior checked the time as he walked towards the car. His wrist was bare. His Rolex was missing. He stopped short of his car, transfixed by a perception of unrushing doom. The custom-fitted, gold-linked band of the wristwatch closed with a clasp that, when released, allowed the watch to slip over the hand with ease. Junior knew at once that the clasp had come undone when his arm tangled in the belt of Nettie's raincoat. The corpse had torn loose and tumbled into the dumpster, taking Junior's watch with it. Although the Rolex was expensive, Junior cared nothing about the monetary loss. He could afford to buy an armful of Rolexes and wear them from wrist to shoulder. The possibility that he left a clear fingerprint on the watch crystal had to be judged remote, and the band had been too textured to take a print useful to the police. On the back of the watch case, however, were the incriminating words of a commemorative engraving. To Eni, Love, Tammy Bean. Tammy, the stock analyst, broker, and cat food-eating feline fetishist, whom he had dated from Christmas to 65 through February of 66, had given him the timepiece in return for all the trading commissions and perfect sex he had given her. Junior was stunned that the bitch had come back into his life to ruin him almost two years later. Zed teaches that the present is just an instant between past and future, which really leaves us with only two choices. To live either in the past or the future. The past being over and done with has no consequences unless we insist on empowering it by not living entirely in the future. Junior Strove always lived in the future, and he believed that he was successful in this striving. But obviously, he hadn't yet learned to apply Zed's wisdom to fullest effect, because the past kept getting at him. He fervently wished he hadn't simply broken up with Tammy Bean, but that he had strangled her instead. That he had strangled her and driven her corpse to Oregon and pushed her off a fire tower and bashed her with a pewter candlestick and sent her to the bottom of Quarry Lake with a gold Rolex stuffed in her mouth. <sighs> he might not have this future living thing down perfectly, but he was absolutely terrific at anger. Maybe the watch wouldn't be discovered with the corpse. 
Maybe we'll settle into the trash and not be found until archaeologists dug out the landfill 2,000 years from now. Maybes are for babies. Zed tells us in Act Now, Think Later, learning to trust your instincts. He could shoot Tammy Bean after he killed Bartholomew. Do her before dawn, before the police tracked her down, so she wouldn't be able to identify any for them. Or, he could go back into the alley, climb in the dumpster, and retrieve the Rolex. As though the fog were a paralytic gas, Junior stood unmoving in the middle of the sidewalk. He really didn't want to climb into that dumpster. Being ruthlessly honest with himself, as always, he acknowledged that killing Tammy would not solve his problem. She might have told friends and colleagues about the Rolex, just as she had surely shared with her girlfriends the juiciest details about Junior's unequal lovemaking. During the two months that he and the Catwoman dated, others had heard her call him Eni. He couldn't kill Tammy and all her friends and colleagues, at least not on a timely enough schedule to thwart the police. An emergency kit in the trunk of his car contained a flashlight. He fetched it and sweetened the bribe to the valet. To the alleyway again. Not through the clodhopper cluttered galley this time. Around the block at a brisk walk. If he didn't find the Rolex and get back to his car before the reception ended, he'd forfeit his best chance of following Celestina to Bartholomew. In the distance, the clang of a trolley car bell, hard and clear in spite of the muffling fog. Junior was reminded of a scene in an old movie, something Naomi wanted to watch, a love story set in the Black Plague, a horse-drawn cart rolling through the medieval streets of London or Paris, the driver ringing a handbell and crying, Bring out your dead! Bring out your dead! If contemporary San Francisco had provided such a convenient service, he wouldn't have had to toss Nettie Nathic in the dumpster in the first place. Wet cobblestones and tattered blacktop. Hurry, hurry. Past the lighted casement window in the gallery men's room. Dringer worried that he might not locate the correct dumpster amongst the many. Yet, he didn't switch on the flashlight, suspecting that he would be able to find his way better if the conditions of darkness and fog were exactly as they had been earlier. In fact, this proved to be the case, and he instantly recognized the hulking dumpster when he came upon it. After tucking the flashlight under his belt, he grabbed the lip of the dumpster with both hands. The metal was gritty, cold, and wet. A fine carpenter can wield a hammer with an economy of movement and accuracy as elegant as the motions of a symphony conductor with a baton. A cop directing traffic can make a rough ballet out of the work. However, of all the humble tasks that men and women can transform into visual poetry by the application of athletic agility and grace, clambering into a dumpster holds the least promise of beautification. Junior levered up, scrambled up, vaulted over, and crashed into the deep bend with every intention of landing on his feet. But he overshot, slammed his shoulder into the back wall of the container, fell to his knees, and sprawled face down in the trash. Having used his body as a clapper on the bell of the dumpster, Junior had struck a loud reverberant note that tolled like a poorly cast cathedral bell, echoing solemnly off the walls of the flanking buildings, back and forth through the fog-bound night. He lay still, waiting for silence to return, so he could hear whether the great gong had drawn people into the alley. The lack of offensive odors indicated that he hadn't landed in a container filled with organic garbage. In the blackness, judging only by feel, he decided that almost everything was in plastic trash bags, the contents of which were relatively soft, 
probably paper refuse. His right side, however, had come to rest against an object harder than bag paper, an angular mass. As the skull-rattling gong faded, allowing more clarity of thought, he realized that an unpleasant, vaguely warm, damp something was pressed against his right cheek. If the angular mass was netty, the vaguely warm, damp something must be the strangled man's protruding tongue. With a thin hiss of disgust, Junior pulled away from the thing, whatever it was, withdrew the flashlight from his belt and listened intently for sounds in the alleyway. No voices. No footsteps. Only distant traffic noises so muffled that they sound like the grunts and groans and low menacing growls of foraging animals. Displaced predators prowling the urban mist. Finally, he switched on the light and illuminated Nettie at ease, silent in death as never in life, lying on his back, head turned to the right, swollen tongue lolling obscenely. Junior vigorously scrubbed his corpse-licked cheek with one hand. Then he scrubbed his hand against the musician's raincoat. He was glad that he had taken the double dose of antiemetics. In spite of his provocation, his stomach felt as solid and secure as a bank vault. Nettie's face didn't appear to be as pale as it had been earlier. An undertone of gray, possibly blue, darkened the skin. The Rolex. Because most of the trash in the huge bin was bagged, finding the watch would be easier than Junior had feared. Okay then. All right. He needed to keep moving, conduct the search, find the watch, and get the hell out of here. But he couldn't stop staring at the musician. Something about the cadaver made him nervous. Aside from the fact that it was dead and disgusting and, if he was caught with it, a one-way ticket to the gas chamber. It wasn't as if this was Junior's first encounter with a dead body. In the past few years, he had become as comfortable with the deceased as any mortician might be. They were as unremarkable to him as cupcakes were to a baker. Yet his heart slammed hard and heavy against his confining ribs and fear stippled the nape of his neck. His attention, as morbid as a circling vulture, settled upon the pianist's right hand. The left was open, palm down, but the right was crumpled shut, palm up. He reached towards the dead man's closed hand, but he couldn't find the courage to touch it. He was afraid that if he pried open the stiff fingers, he would discover a quarter inside. Ridiculous. Im impossible. But what if? Then don't look. Focus. Focus on the Rolex. Instead, he focused on the hand in the flashlight beam. Four long, thin, chalk-white digits bent to the hill, thumb thrust up stiffly as though Nettie hoped to hitchhike out of the dumpster, out of death, and back to his piano in the cocktail lounge on Knob Hill. Focus. He must not let fear displace his anger. Remember the beauty of rage. Channel the anger and be a winner. Act now. Think later. In a sudden, desperate burst of action, Junior tore at the dead man's closed hand, sprang up in a trap of fingers and palm, and did not find a quarter, nor two dimes and a nickel, nor five nickels. Nothing. Zip. Zero. He almost laughed at himself, but he recalled the disconcerting laugh that earlier had trilled from him in the men's room when he had thought about stuffing Nettie Nathic into the toilet. Now he pinched his tongue between his teeth, almost hard enough to draw blood, hoping to prevent that brittle and mirthless sound from escaping him again. The Rolex. First, he searched immediately around the dead man, figuring that the watch might still be snared on the coat belt or on one of the sleeve straps. No luck. 
He rolled Nettie on the one side, but no gold watch lay underneath, so he let the musician flop onto his back again. Now, here was the thing, worse than the thought of a quarter in the closed hand. Nettie's eyes seemed to follow Junior as he rooted amongst the trash bags. He knew that the only movement in those staring, sightless eyes was a restless reflection of the flashlight beam as he probed the trash with it. He knew he was being irrational, but nevertheless, he was reluctant to turn his back on the corpse. Repeatedly in the midst of searching, he snapped his head up, whipping his attention to Nettie, certain that from the corner of his eye, he had seen the dead gaze following him. Then, he thought he heard footsteps approaching in the alley. He doused the light and crouched motionless in the absolute darkness, leaning against the wall of the dumpster to steady himself, because his feet were planted in a slippery layer of the fog-damp and plastic trash bags. If there had been footsteps, they had fallen silent the moment Junior froze to listen for them. Even over the hard drumming of his heart, he would have heard any noise. The pillowy fog seemed to smother sound in the alleyway more effectively than ever. The longer he crouched, head cocked, breathing silently through his open mouth, the more convinced Junior became that he had heard a man approaching. Indeed, the terrible conviction grew that someone was standing immediately in front of the dumpster, head cocked, also breathing through his open mouth, listening for Junior even as Junior listened for him. What if? No. He wasn't going to what if himself into a panic. Yes, but what if? Maybes were for babies, but Caesar's Ed had failed to provide a profundity with which Junior could ward off the what ifs as easily as the maybes. What if the stubborn, selfish, greedy, grubbing, vicious, psychotic, evil spirit of Thomas Vanadium, which had earlier pursued Junior through another alleyway in broad daylight, had followed him into this one in the more ghost-friendly hours of the night? And what if that spirit were standing just outside the dumpster right now? And what if it closed the bifurcated lid and slipped a bolt through the latch rings? And what if Junior were trapped here with a thoroughly strangled corpse of Nettie Nathic? And what if the flashlight failed when he tried to switch it on again? And then what if in the pitch blackness he heard Nettie say, Does anyone have a special request? Chapter 69 Nice Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. On this January twilight, as Maria Elena Gonzalez drove south along the coast from Newport Beach, all men of the sea must have been reaching for their bottles of rum to celebrate the fruit punch sky. Ripe cherries in the west, blood oranges overhead, clustered grapes dark purple in the east. This sight that might inspire celebration among sailors was denied to Barty, who rode in the back seat with Agnes. Neither could he see how the crimson sky studied his painted face in the mirror of the ocean, nor how a burning blush shimmered on the waves, nor how the veil of night slowly returned modesty to the heavens. Agnes considered describing the sunset to the blinded boy, but her hesitancy settled into reluctance, and by the time the stars came out, she had not said a word about the day's splendorous final act. For one thing, she worried that her description would fall far short of the reality, and that with her inadequate words, she might dull Barty's precious memories of sunsets he had seen. Primarily, however, she failed to remark on the spectacle because she was afraid that to do so would be to remind him of all that he had lost. These past ten days have been the most difficult of her life, harder even than those following Joey's death. 
Back then, although she had lost a husband and a gentle lover and her best friend all at once, she had her undiminished faith, as well as her newborn son and all the promise of his future. She still had her precious boy, even though his future was to some extent blighted, and her faith remained with her too, though diminished and offering less solace than before. Barty's release from Hoag Presbyterian had been delayed by an infection, and thereafter, he had spent three days in the Newport Area Rehabilitation Hospital. Rehab consisted largely of orientation to his new dark world, since his lost function could not be recovered by either diligent exercise or therapy. Ordinarily, a child of three would be too young to learn the use of a blind man's cane, but Barty wasn't ordinary. Initially, no cane was available for such a small child, so Barty began with the yardstick, sawing off the 26 inches. By his last day, they had for him a custom cane, white with a black tip. The sight of it and all it implied brought tears to Agnes just when she thought her heart had toughened for the task ahead. Instruction in Braille wasn't recommended for three-year-olds, but an exception was made in this case. Agnes arranged to have Barty receive a series of lessons, although she suspected that he'd absorb the system and learn to use it in one or two sessions. Artificial eyes were on order. He was soon returned to Newport Beach for a third fitting before the implant. They weren't glasses commonly believed, but thin plastic shells that fit neatly behind the eyelids and the cavities left after surgery. On the inner surface of the transparent artificial cornea, the artificial iris will be skillfully hand-painted, and movement of the ocular prosthesis could be achieved by attaching the eye-moving muscles to the conjunctiva. As impressed as Agnes had been with the sample orbs that she had been shown, she allowed no hope that the singular beauty of Barty's striated emerald sapphire eyes would be recreated. Although the artist's work might be exquisite, these irises would be painted by human hands, not by God's. With his empty sockets draped by unsupported lids, Barty rode home wearing padded eye patches under sunglasses. His cane propped against a seat at his side, as though he was costumed for a role in a play filled with a Dickensian amount of childhood suffering. The previous day, Jacob and Edom had drove him back to Bright Beach to prepare for Barty's arrival. Now, they hurried down the back porch steps and across the lawn as Maria followed the driveway past the house and parked near the detached garage at the rear of the deep property. Jacob intended to carry the luggage, and Edom announced that he would carry Barty. The boy, however, insisted on making his own way to the house. But Barty, Edom fretted. It's dark. It sure is, Barty said. When only a mortified silence followed his remark, he added, Gee, I thought that was kind of funny. With his mother, his uncles, and Maria hovering just two steps behind, Barty followed the driveway, not bothering with the cane, keeping his right foot on the concrete, his left foot on the grass, until he came to a jog in the pavement, which apparently he had been seeking. He stopped, facing due north, considered for a moment, and then pointed due west. The oak tree's over there. That's right, Agnes confirmed. With the great tree 90 degrees to his left, he was able to locate the back porch steps at 45 degrees. He pointed with the cane, which otherwise he had not used. The porch? Perfect, Agnes encouraged. Neither hesitantly nor recklessly, the boy set off across the lawn towards the porch steps. He maintained a far straighter line than Agnes would have been able to keep with her eyes closed. At her side, Jacob wondered, 
What should we do? Just let him be, she advised. Just let him be Barty. Forward, under the spreading black branches of the massive tree, receiving continuous green-tongued murmurs of encouragement from the breeze-stirred leaves, Barty was Barty, determined and undaunted. When he judged that he was near the porch steps, he probed with his cane. Two paces later, the tip wrapped the lowest step. He felt for the railing, grasped at the empty air only briefly, found the handrail. He climbed to the porch. The kitchen door stood open and full of light, but he missed it by two feet. He felt along the back wall of the house, discovered the door casing and then the opening. Probed with the cane for the threshold and stepped into the doorway. Turning to face his four trailing escorts, all of whom were hunched shouldered and stiff-necked with tension, Barty said, What's for dinner? Jacob had spent most of two days baking Barty's favorite pies, cakes, and cookies, and he had prepared a meal as well. Maria's girls were at her sister's place that evening, so she stayed for dinner. Eden poured wine for everyone but Barty, root beer for the guests of honor, and while this couldn't be called a celebration, Agnes's spirits were lifted by a sense of normalcy, of hope, of family. Eventually, dinner over, cleanup finished. When Maria and the uncles had gone, Agnes and Barty faced the steps together. She followed, holding his cane, which he said he preferred not to use in the house, prepared to catch him if he stumbled. One hand on the railing, he ascended the first three steps slowly. Pausing on each, he slid his foot forward and back on the carpet runner to judge the depth of the tread relative to a small foot. He ran the toe of his right shoe up and down the riser between each tread, gauging the height. Barty approached stair climbing as a mathematical problem, calculating the precise movement of each leg and placement of each foot necessary to successfully negotiate the obstacle. He proceeded less slowly on the next three steps than he had on the first three, and thereafter he ascended it with growing confidence, pumping his legs with machine-like precision. Agnes could almost visualize the three-dimensional geometric model that her little prodigy had created in his mind, which he now relied upon to reach the upper floor without a serious stumble. Pride, wonder, and sorrow pulled her heart in different directions. Reflecting upon her son's clever, diligent, and uncomplaining adaptation to darkness, she wished that she had described to him the dazzling sunset under which they had made their journey home. Although her words might have been inadequate to the spectacle, he would have elaborated on them to create a picture in his mind. With his creative skills, the world that he lost with his sight might be remade in equal splendor in his imagination. Agnes hoped that the boy would spend a night or two in her room, until he was reoriented to the house. But Barty wanted to sleep in his own bed. She worried that he would need to go to the bathroom during the night, and that, half asleep, he might turn the wrong way, towards the stairs, and fall. Three times they paced off the roof from the doorway of his room to the hall bath. She would have walked it a hundred times and still not been satisfied, but Barty said, Okay, I got it. During Barty's hospitalization, they had graduated from the young adult novels by Robert Heinlein to some of the same author science fiction for general audiences. Now, pajamaed and in bed, with his sunglasses on the nightstand, but his padded iPad still in place, Barty listened, rapt to the beginning of Double Star. No longer able to judge the boy's degree of sleepiness by his eyes, she relied on him to tell her when to stop reading. At his request, she closed the book after 47 pages, 
at the end of chapter two. Agnes went to Barty and kissed him goodnight. Mom, if I ask you for something, will you do it? Of course, honey. Don't I always? He pushed back the bedclothes and sat up, leaning against the pillows and headboard. This is maybe a hard thing for you to do, but it's, it's really important. Sitting on the edge of the bed, taking his hand, she stared at his sweet little bow of a mouth, whereas before she would have met his eyes. Tell me. Don't be sad, okay? Agnes had believed that through this ordeal, she had largely spared her child from an awareness of the awful depths of her misery. In this, however, as in so many other instances, the boy proved to be more perceptive and more mature than she had realized. Now she felt that she had failed him, and this failure ached like a wound. He said, You're the pie lady. Once was. Will be. And the pie lady? She's never sad. Sometimes even the pie lady. You always leave people feeling good like Santa Claus leaves them. She gently squeezed his hand but couldn't speak. It's there even when you read to me now. The, the, the sad feeling, I mean. It changes the story. Makes it not as good because I can't pretend I don't hear how sad you are. With effort, she managed to say, I'm, I'm sorry, sweetie. But her voice was sufficiently distorted by anguish that even to herself, she sounded like a stranger. After a silence, he asked, Mom, you always believe me, don't you? Always, she said, because she had never known the lie. Are you looking at me? Yes, she assured him, though her gaze had dropped from his mouth to his hand, so small, which she held in hers. Mom, do I look sad? By habit, she shifted her attention to his eyes, because though the scientific types insist that the eyes themselves are incapable of expression, Agnes knew what every poet knows. To see the condition of the hidden heart, you must first look where scientists will not admit to looking at all. The white padded eye patches rebuffed her, and she realized how profoundly the boy's double enucleation would affect how easily she could read his moods and know his mind. Here was a literal loss until now shadowed by the greater destruction. Denied the evidence of his eyes, she would need to be better at noting and interpreting nuances of his body language, also changed by blindness, and his voice, for there would be no soul revealed by hand-painted plastic implants. Do I look sad? Barter repeated. Even the Shantung-softened lamplight blazed too bright and did not serve her well, so she switched it off and said, Scoot over. The boy made room for her. She kicked off her shoes and sat beside him in bed, with her back against the headboard, still holding his hand. Even though this darkness wasn't as deep as Barty's, Agnes found that she was better able to control her emotions when she couldn't see him. I, th I think you must be sad, sweetie. You hide it. You hide it so well, but you have to be. You must be. I'm not, though. Bull poop, as they say. That's not what they say, the boy replied with a giggle, for his extensive reading had introduced him to words that he and she agreed were not his to use. Bull poop might not be what they say, but it's the worst that we say, and in fact, in this house, bull duty is preferred. Bull duty doesn't have a lot of punch. 
Punch is overrated. I'm really not sad, Mom. I'm not. I don't like it this way, being blind. it It's hard. His small voice, musical as are the voices of most children, touching in its innocence, spun a fragile thread of melody in the dark. It seemed too sweet to be speaking of these bitter things. Real hard. But being sad won't help. Being sad won't make me see again. No, it won't, she agreed. Besides, I'm blind here, but I'm not blind in all the places where I am. This again. Enigmatic as ever on the subject, he continued. I'm probably not blind more places than I am, yet... Yeah, sure. I'd rather be me in one of the other places where my eyes are good. But this the me I am. And you know what? What? There's a reason why I'm blind in this place but not blind everywhere I am. What reason? There must be something important that I'm supposed to do here that I don't need to do everywhere I am. Something I'll do better if I'm blind. Like what? I don't know. He was silent a moment. That's what's going to be interesting. She traded silence for silence. Then, kiddo, I'm still totally confused by this stuff. I know, Mom. Someday I'll understand it better and explain it all to you. I look forward to that, I guess. And that's not bull duty. I didn't think it was. And you know what? What? I believe you. About the sad? he asked. About the sad. You really aren't, and that just stuns me, kiddo. I get frustrated, he admitted. Trying to learn how to do things in the dark, I get peed off, as they say. That's not what they say, she teased. That's what we say. Actually, if we have to say it at all, I'd rather say we get tinkled off. He groaned. Ugh. That just doesn't cut it, Mom. If I gotta be blind, I think I should get to say peed off. You're probably right, she conceded. I get peed off, and and I miss some things terrible, but I'm not sad. And you got to not be sad either, because it spoils everything. I promise to try. And you know what? What? Maybe I won't have to try as hard as I think, because you make it so easy, Barty. For more than two weeks, Agnes' heart had been a clangorous place filled with the rattle and bang of hard emotions. But now it was sort of quiet to come upon it. A peace that, if it held, might one day allow joy again. Can I touch your face? Barty asked. Your old mom's face? You're not old. You've read about the pyramids. I was here first. Bull duty. Unerringly, in the darkness, he found her face with both hands, smoothed her brow, Trace her eyes with fingertips, her nose, her lips, her cheeks. There were tears, he said. There were, she admitted. But not now. All dried up. You feel as pretty as you look, Mom. She took his small hands in hers and kissed them. I'll always know your face, he promised. Even if you have to go away and you're gone a hundred years, I'll remember what you look like, how you felt. I'm not going anywhere, she pledged. She realized that his voice was growing heavy with sleep, but it's time for you to go to dreamland. Agnes got out of bed, switched on the lamp, and tucked Barty in once more. Say your silent prayers. Doing it now, 
he said thickly. She slipped into her shoes and stood for a moment, watching his lips move as he gave thanks for his blessings, and he asked that blessings be given to others who needed them. She found the switch and clicked off the lamp again. Good night, young prince. Good night, queen mother. She started towards the door, stopped, and turned to him in the dark. Kid of mine? Hmm? Did I ever tell you what your name means? My name... Bartholomew, he said sleepily. No, Lampion. Somewhere in your father's French background, there must have been lamp makers. A Lampion is a small lamp, an oil lamp with a tinted glass chimney. Among other things, in those long ago days, they used them on carriages. Smiling in the fearless dark, she listened to the rhythmic breathing of a sleeping boy. She whispered then, You're my little Lampion, Barty. You light the way for me. That night, her sleep was deeper than it had been in a long time. Deep as she had expected sleep would never be again, and she was not plagued by any dreams at all. Not a dream of children suffering, nor a tumbling in a car along a rain-washed street, nor thousands of wind-blown dead leaves rattling hissing along a deserted street, and every leaf, in fact, a jack of spades. So the next chapter is like two hours and 13 minutes long, which means we'll split it into part one and part two, kind of like what we did with previous books. Hold on to yourselves. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Podchaser, copy and paste that in the Apple Podcasts, copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. Thank you to everybody who's been hitting me up on the Good Pods app. I really do appreciate uh, the love that I've been receiving there. Um, you can also leave a review on Spotify. That takes like 13 seconds. Um, you can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or on buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the GoFundMe, uh, GoFundMe app (laughs) or on the Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm a hot you later. Peace. outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.